pray for God's blessing upon His Word. Lord, we do pray that Your Word this morning would be living and active, that it would be at work within our own souls as Your Spirit takes it deep within us. We pray that He would be our great teacher this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Our Scripture passage this morning is Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9, which you'll find on page 395 and 396 of the Pew Bible. We've been working through the book of Ezra, looking at principles of what the church can expect as God builds and renews His church. And we've looked at a number of things. How God must be the one to do the work of rebuilding and renewing His church all the time. How if that is taking place, we begin to put first things first. That is to say that worship becomes central. That we can expect that there will be opposition, that there will be discouragement along the way. And we've seen how God is at work to overcome that discouragement. Uh, We've seen how leadership is much needed among the people of God, particularly through the leading of His Word. And then we've also seen how God requires His people to be all in as disciples of the Lord Jesus. And this morning we're dealing with the issue of sin that arises with the people of God. Surely as we deal with taxes, we will have to deal with sin because we are sinners. And this particular passage begins us on a couple of week journey here on how the church ought to deal with sin within its midst. So let me read for us here chapter 9 of Ezra. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands of their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads And our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now a brief moment, uh, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, and to give us a secure hold within His holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia, 
to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God and to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break our, your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Sure, many of you remember about 10 years ago now the Enron Corporation scandal, where executives had basically stripped all the wealth out of this corporation and taken it for themselves, and there was nothing left. And there was one person in particular who was the whistleblower. And she struggled with whether or not she ought to blow the whistle, having come across all of this information about the truth of the corporation's financial holdings. And so there was the question, should I expose this? Should I bring it into the light? Or should I just pretend that it doesn't exist? And in many ways, that's the question that churches sometimes deal with, organizations deal with, families deal with. There's some scandal. And the question is, should we bring it into the light? Or should we pretend that it doesn't exist? Churches sometimes deal with it by redefining what sin is. Sometimes they do just the opposite and begin to expose it. This text here is not so much about church discipline, but what should the church do whenever sin is brought into light? Well, Ezra's mission here, as we were told back in chapter 7, verse 14, is to inquire, inquire into the state of the people of God. That was his mission. He is a priest. He was to be about the work of teaching the law of God to them once again. Not as a witch hunt, you might say, to find out who has been, been, who has been naughty and who has been nice, but rather to build them up and nourish them in the Scriptures so that they might live for God in faithfulness. And yet, right off the bat after they arrive, the leaders, some of the officials, we're told in verse 1, approached Ezra and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. So some of the officials of God's people are now coming and wanting to expose a particular sin. And they come to Ezra and explain the situation to him. Now, are they just being tattletales? I don't think so. I think their desire is actually for the holiness and the purity of God's people 
for the glory of God Himself. After all, what they go on to say here in verse 2 is that we are to be this holy race. You see this language all throughout the Scriptures where when God brought His people out of Egypt and just before He brought them to Sinai, said, you are to be a holy nation for Me. And Peter in his epistle, first epistle, picks up on this language and says, but we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We are to be holy because God is holy. Our Savior is holy and He's wanting us to be like Him. He's at work now making us like Himself. And so sin ought not to be hidden. It ought not to be glossed over, but rather exposed so that it can be dealt with in the right fashion. There's a great difference between the church on earth and the church glorified. The church glorified is now without sin. Men and women and children in the Lord who have gone before us know the freedom of being without sin. And yet, in our day, on this earth, as long as the church exists in this age, there will be sin within the church among the people of God. And to be a community of the Gospel means that we're not surprised by that fact. But rather that we're saddened by it. That it makes us mourn. It makes us weep. Because we're not as we should be. See, the troubling news here for Ezra and for the rest of the people is that they've repudiated the graciousness of God. That He's brought them back. And yet they've been faithless once again. Now this sin that they have committed, we're told here, is the intermarrying of the people of God with the peoples of the lands. And he mentions, once again, all the different types of people here. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and so on. God had commanded His people not to intermarry with the people of the land once they entered into the promised land. Now this is not mere nationalism. This is not as if Israel is somehow better than all the other people. This is not just nationalism. This is a spiritual issue. Because God knows that marriage is such a powerful force within our lives. He's given marriage for our blessing. God said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that a man shall leave his father and mother and he shall hold fast his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That there's such an intimate joining between a man and a woman that one has influence over the other. And think about this. If you were to marry a non-Christian, at the core of your heart is the Lord Jesus. An affection for Christ. A loyalty to Christ. A desire to honor Him with your life. To build your life around Him. But at the core of the heart of your spouse is something altogether different. Something other than Christ. How is it that you could be joined together in oneness? In such intimacy when at the very core of your being, you're going in opposite directions. And so what God says here is you ought not to intermarry because it will lead you astray. And it's the very thing that happened again and again in Israel's history. Just think of King Ahab who was 
told to be the worst of all the kings, worse than all the ones before him. Do you remember who he married? Jezebel, the daughter of the king of Sidon. And she convinced Ahab to build a temple and an altar to Baal, to begin Baal worship. And she convinced him to murder all the prophets of God. And she convinced him to commit injustices against his own people. Do you see what kind of destruction can come when God's Word is spurned and we do not follow it? And so Paul says to the Corinthian church that we are to marry in the Lord. So the leaders here, unfortunately, accept this sin and they go along with it because we're told here that it's faith, uh, the, this faithlessness was at the hand of the officials and the chief men has been the foremost. In other words, it's some of the leaders of Israel who have been the worst offenders in all of this. We must be brought to the awareness of our own sin. And that's exactly what these other officials are doing is bringing it into the light. And when it happens, how should we respond Two ways. First, this, that we're to be broken over our sin. Broken over our sin. That's Ezra's response. Verse 3 says this As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. And when's the last time that you've done that over your sin? Pulled hair from your head and from your beard if you have a beard. That's Ezra's response here. He just cannot believe it. There's such a deep sorrow and conviction. And look at what he says in verse 6. I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. He's ashamed. He, he blushes before God. Which is the very opposite of what our culture does. If you think of some of the ads that are now in magazines and on billboards and on the internet and on TV, some of which borderline on child pornography, as 15-year-old young girls are being presented in lingerie. Or think of some of the reality shows in which people do foolish and sinful things and you say they're humiliating themselves and they don't even know how to blush about it. They're not even ashamed of it because their conscience is so seared and that ought not to be for the people of God. But there ought to be a sensitive conscience so that we are ashamed of our sin and blush before the Lord. And there's all these outward signs here where Ezra is falling on his face before God and tearing his garment and fasting before the Lord. And you notice what happens when he mourns over his sin. The people of God are broken of their pride. Verse 4, Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. True repentance, which is what God longs for, begins with sorrow over our sin. Now, notice that the people who joined Ezra here were told that they trembled. They trembled at the words of the God of Israel. Now, this is not mere fear at what God can do to them. And this is something that we need to understand very clearly. Being a terrified sinner is not the same thing as being 
a repentant sinner. A terrified sinner is afraid of what judgment is going to come and what God can do to us. A repentant sinner is one who is more afraid that you've hurt God, that you've offended Him, that you've grieved Him in some way, and that this fear and trembling that they ought to have before Him is one in which they're afraid that they've somehow somehow hurt God and offended Him so that their fellowship with Him would be diminished. That is the fear that we ought to have. And so repentance begins with a deep sorrow that somehow we've offended God. Much like the prostitute in Luke chapter 7 who comes to Jesus when Jesus is at a Sabbath meal with Simon the Pharisee and all of these other Pharisees who are gathered around at the meal and none of them paid Jesus any of the normal respect that a host would Washing his feet, anointing his head, giving him the seat of honor. No, they don't do any of those things. And so this woman comes to Jesus with her alabaster jar of ointment, which was an ointment that prostitutes would use to make themselves more pleasing. And she weeps over him. She anoints him with this alabaster jar of ointment. And she dries his feet. With her hair. It's as if she has a glimpse of what her sin would cause. The pain that it would cause to her Savior. That it's her sin for her lifestyle that she's been living. That would drive nails into the hand of her Savior. And she is sorry for it. And she weeps over Him. It's the same picture that God gives us in Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. Who by the way was a prophet during the time of the book of Ezra. And God says this, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn. Now certainly that must be looking forward to the Lord Jesus who would be pierced for us. But in this particular context, it's that they have pierced the heart of God and caused Him to grieve because their sin is so gross. They've rejected Him. And they've rebelled against Him. Because of that they ought to have sorrow that they've pierced His heart. And that ought to be the same sorrow that we feel as well. Godly sorrow is not primarily sorrow of the consequences that come but sorrow over the offense that we've caused to the lover of our souls, the one who's given everything, including his life, for us. And it should break our heart that we have sinned against him. Now, we're all of differing constitutions. Some of us are a little more reserved, a little more stoic. Maybe we haven't cried in the last 30 years. Others of us cry at the drop of a hat. We have We have different constitutions, different personalities, and we respond to things in a different fashion. But tears in themselves do not necessarily equate to godly sorrow. And sometimes our our stoic personalities actually need to be broken of that so that we actually mourn of our sin before the Lord. But one thing is true. There ought to be more bitterness in our sorrow then there was delight in our sin. There ought to be more bitterness in our sorrow than delight in our sin. Think of David and Bathsheba. 
certainly there was more bitterness in his repentance than there ever was of pleasure with Bathsheba. Or think of Peter when he denied Jesus for his own sake. I think there was much more bitterness in Peter and remorse over the ways that he had offended his Savior than there was comfort in saying, I do not know the man. And that ought to be true of us. There ought to be a greater sense of sorrow than delight in our sin. And ultimately, we know that our, our sorrow for sin is genuine when it begins to release the hold on our sin that we once had. When the sin that we've embraced so tightly and we said, I'm not going to let go of this, when our sorrow for it so overwhelms us that we're willing to let go of it and hand it over to God, that's when we know we're really broken and that there's a real sense of godly sorrow within us. And so we ought to be broken over our sin. But secondly, and we see this here very plainly, we ought to be burdened to pray. That's what Ezra says in verse 5, at the evening sacrifice I arose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Here he is in prayer. Ezra's first action was actually inaction. It wasn't to do anything. It was to pray before God. That's probably the example of a wise leader. To go in prayer before the Lord before you actually take any action. That's because every bit of our lives is lived before the Lord. He owns all of it. Everything is seen by the eyes of God. And if that's true, if our whole life is lived before the Lord, and our whole life is to be lived for the Lord, then why would we ever seek to find a solution apart from Him? So the first thing that we ought to do is to pray. And that's Ezra's burden And it should be our burden too. Friends, there is nothing of lasting value. Nothing that will last forever that doesn't first begin with prayer. And a church that is a gospel-driven church understands that and lives a life of prayer. But we often struggle to pray. And it's the reason that Jesus in Luke chapter 18 tells a parable of the impertinent widow to his disciples. Why? Because he says, I don't want you to lose heart and stop praying. Continue to pray. Pray without ceasing. Do not give up. He knew the hearts of his disciples who in the Garden of Gethsemane three times fell asleep and could not watch and pray. We struggle to pray. Paul recognized this struggle in the book of Colossians when he wrote to the Colossians about his fellow servant Epaphras and he says of Epaphras that he is one of you a servant of Christ Jesus he greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God Epaphras had come from the Colossians he knew the struggles in Colossae he knew that there was a heresy running rampant and he was in constant prayer for the people that they would stand firm in the will of God. And it was a great struggle because he knew over there there was a struggle to believe. But it's also a struggle for us as well. Not only for the work to be done, 
Also because prayer is a work, isn't it? It's work. And it takes great effort. There's laziness on our part. There's apathy. We, we just don't really care that much. There's apathy towards God, towards other people for whom we pray. Sometimes there's fear and guilt that keeps us from praying. But whatever the reason, it's often a great struggle to pray. The enemy doesn't want us to pray. Sin doesn't want us to pray before God. But often God brings us to a point where there's nothing left for us to do. Much like Ezra here. So He forces us on our knees to come to Him. So that He might bless us in prayer. Now what do we learn from Ezra's prayer? Let me say three things quickly. One, humility in confession. Now that might sound obvious. You're supposed to be humble when you confess your sins, right? But look here in verse 6. At the level of Ezra's humility. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to You, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. And our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. He says, our iniquities, our guilt. He owns the guilt of the people for himself. He knows that his well-being is wrapped up in the well-being of the people. That there's a solidarity between them. And he says, it's not just their sin, it's my sin. And he owns it for himself. That's a level of humility that we ought to have. Certainly he could have pointed to his innocence. He and the rest of this second wave who have returned could have said, now Lord, we didn't have any part of this. This was not our sin. This was going on before we arrived. This is not our guilt. It's not our iniquity. But Ezra's solidarity with the people was much like our Lord Jesus' solidarity with His people. Who, as Isaiah said, was numbered with the transgressors. Ezra numbered himself with the transgressors. Just like Jesus numbers Himself with the transgressors. Which is you and me. Now that's humility. I'm one of them, Lord. Yes, it's their sin, but I'm no different. I'm a sinner just like they are. Have mercy upon us. And that's a quite different kind of spirit than the backbiting spirit that says, now it's their problem. They need to go deal with it. It's their guilt. It's their iniquity. And that's the kind of backbiting spirit that's often prevalent in churches and in families and various organizations to point out other people and to say, now it's their fault. We want to look out for number one. It's not my fault. I'll separate and distance myself from those kind of people. But you see, when the Gospel is really at work, then what happens in a church is that there's a whole different kind of atmosphere. It says we're all in this together. We're all sinners. And I'll take the log out of my eye before I try to take the speck out of anybody else's. So there's humility here in confession, but also there's God's right to punish. A recognition of that. Verse 7 says that the days from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And he goes on over in verses 13 through 15 to speak about this after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt seeing that you our God have punished us less than our iniquities deserved 
and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there would be no remnant nor any escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. None can stand before you because of this. Ezra doesn't go to God and say, Lord, you don't have the right to judge me. But rather he says, Lord, you have the right to bring judgment upon us. And it's an admittance of our betrayal of God and of God's right to judge. You remember when you were a child and you would go to your parents and say, or at least you wish you could say to your parents, you don't have a right to tell me that I did something wrong. You wished you could say that. And sometimes we wish we could say that to God. But real repentance gives up the right to say that. And says, Lord, you have the right to bring upon me anything that you think that I deserve. True repentance means no longer clinging to the notion that God doesn't have the right to punish us. It's exactly what Paul meant in Romans chapter 3 when he condemns all the world in sin and he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world accountable to God. So that every mouth is stopped. No more excuses. No more blaming somebody else. No more telling God, you don't have the right to tell me that I did something wrong. God, you don't have the right to bring upon me your justice. But we listen to His Word and we accept it. Friends, there's a great difference between God disciplining His people through His Word and God disciplining His people by His hand. As a parent, we want our children to listen to our words that we say and that they would simply accept the fact that what we say is true. And when they don't, sometimes we have to spank them and use our hand. And God would much rather just use His words to speak to us so that we would say, Lord, forgive us. Rather than having to use His hand and break us of our pride. And then when we've come to the point where we say, Lord, You have the right to declare that we are guilty, that's when we know we've come to real repentance. Well, not only... Is there humility and confession and recognition of God's right to punish? Finally, there's this. There's hope in God's grace. Going back to verse 8 here. But now for a brief moment, favor or grace has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and give us a secure hold, literally a, a tent peg stuck in the ground. That is our hold that we're holding on to within this holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love. He says we're slaves. Now I'm not sure exactly what he means here. It may mean that he feels himself to be still under the reign of the Persian Empire, not fully free. But it may just mean that like the Apostle Paul said, that we feel like we're slaves to sin. 
And what I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. And yet God in His mercy has not forsaken us. And that what He has done is actually brighten our eyes and give us a reviving in the midst of our repentance, in the midst of our sin and sorrow. There's a brightening of our eyes when we begin to look upon the grace and mercy of the Lord. There's hope because what God has already done for Ezra and for the people of God. Now you notice it's interesting what Ezra did not do in his prayer. There's no resolution to rectify the situation yet. Nor is there even a request for forgiveness. He's simply throwing himself and the whole nation upon the mercies of God. Lord, you've been merciful in the past. And our only hope is that you'll be merciful and gracious in the future. And friends, we have a secure hold, don't we? Because we know that in the past, the Lord Jesus has paid for our sins. So that He will be gracious to us now as we come to Him in repentance. And gracious to us in the future. So that one day all of our sin will be removed. And we will be the church glorified. No longer wallowing in sorrow. No longer confessing sin rejoicing with Jesus, our great Savior. How does the church deal with sin? The first thing is we pray for mercy. We pray for mercy. We're going to do that in a few minutes when we come to the Lord's table. And as we do, let's come in humility. Let's come confessing God's right to judge. But let's come in hope in the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we turn to You. We confess that our lives are not as they ought to be. And we confess that corporately we have sinned against You. But we ask, Lord, for Your mercies. And we pray for that reviving and brightening of our eyes as we look upon Jesus and Him crucified and all the grace that He has extended to us so that we would come to You in hope, in faith, and a great love for Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.